Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg. Uh, we've got Luke Curtin on the show later, but first, I got a very exciting guest. 2016 Olympian uh, and filmmaker, actress, writer, director, uh, Alexi Pappas. Alexi, Alexi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I just watched uh, the first half of Track Town, which is your new movie coming to theaters on May 12th. So I can't say I know what happens yet. I only got the screener last night, so I haven't I haven't watched the complete movie. But it's it's good. It's it's interesting to me for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, that you've made a movie about running track, which is sort of a difficult thing to do. It, it is, and you know there have been. Um you know, sports films that, um, I've experienced and running films, but I was really excited to capture this world that I'm very familiar with. And from sort of the more, uh, female perspective of Olympic running, um, which we, we hope we captured in track town. And I think we really did in, in this very authentic, specific world. Yeah, and and part of what makes the movie interesting to me is, I, I guess I kind of expected when I when I see you know when I see the note and this is a this is an Olympic runner making a movie about running and to me that means it's going to be sort of like a love letter to running and and you sort of present a little bit more complicated of a relationship with the sport. Yeah, I think something that makes track town different than some sports films is that the running world is really the backdrop or the the environment where there's really just this girl who's trying to kind of grapple with focusing on on one thing and one pursuit that she may or may not get and 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 around her are all these people her family, her friends, her love interest who are kind of tugging her in different directions um, and causing her to really like question like what is that dedication and and, and is it worth it and can she, um, is it okay to really pursue this one thing full on? How do you, so, so I mean this is something I think that a lot of people, a challenge a lot of people face in writing fiction, which is that it's, it's coming from a voice and it's coming from your voice and so, uh, at least I know in my experience with any time I've tried to write fiction is, is you're, you're sort of envisioning yourself as the main character and then you start wondering how, uh, how people might perceive you uh, in terms of that character. There's obviously a lot of similarities between you and Plum Marigold here, right? You're the you're the actress and you're the writer and the and the director of this movie and it's a movie about a, a track star and uh, how do you separate yourself from the character and and is there anything sort of liberating in it not being an autobiography? Yeah, so I think with Tracktown, what I was so excited about capturing is is the experience of growing up in this highly specific place that's real like there's a real track town usa where the olympic trials are held every four years and where people on the trails you know are, are diehard runners they know you had a race last week and for plum the main character she grew up in that world for me i i discovered this world after college um or in my basically my final year of college and so what was fun about making the film is that 
I could put myself in the shoes and imagining what it would have been like to grow up in this, you know, kind of beautiful, but also, you know, high pressure in a way world. Um, but at the same time I had my sort of outside perspective of like, what else, you know, what is it like to, um, to enter that world later and observe it. And so Plum ended up being kind of like a patchwork quilt of my experiences entering this world and growing up as a runner and also my observations of athletes around me. Um, and I think what, what we got was a, a film that my Olympic teammates feel show their experience in a way that they haven't seen before, but also something that non-athletes can hopefully identify with um, in the way of like just chasing something that you're not sure if you're going to get or not. Well, and I, and I don't want to I don't want to give away too much of the movie, but uh, a big part of it is that Plum, the main character, the runner, is sort of forced into taking a day off, and that is an incredible challenge I think for for most of us for most of us who haven't been to the Olympics and and don't know the type of d drive and dedication it takes to get there I think for a lot of us the idea of a day off is a very simple and straightforward thing but it's it's very complicated it almost it almost the film almost portrays the running here as sort of an addiction is is that is that how you feel about it I think so I think for for Plum, the idea, and for for any Olympic runner, training is is challenging, but it's also the routine. It's what you count on every day, and so when you're taken out of that, it's it's very you know disorienting and confusing as to like what do you do with your time, and uh, and sort of the fear of of getting away from that routine, and so for this girl who has just pretty much had this laser sharp focus her whole life to be taken out of that um, routine, I think is uh, is challenging in, in more ways than than she thought. Well then, and also if you sort of step back from it now and, and I think about, uh, again, the fact that, that you've written this movie and, and you show the amount of time that Plum has to put into training and, and how it, it does sort of dominate her her lifestyle. How did you find the time to get into writing? Because this is not this is not even the first movie you've written, correct? Right. My partner Jeremy's first film, Tall as the Baobab Tree. I, I co-wrote that with him while I was in school. But I think with with balancing the filmmaking, the running, I've really tried to you know view it and really felt like it's been a positive feedback loop. Where uh, yes, like I might take my post workout meal by the computer looking at um edits with jeremy but that's sort of my pleasure and it's it's motivating to to have a time to end practice every day and resume the film work and vice versa so it takes like a lot of organization and, and planning but also just i think it fuels me and it and it feels very synergistic in that way yeah, I think that one thing that, especially in the media and, and uh, I, guess, I guess among sports fans in general, we kind of, 
uh, tend to, to paint athletes as, as people who might not have any other interests or, or even people who shouldn't have any interests. I think about, you know, baseball or basketball, and if a guy, you know, cuts a rap album, then everybody says, well, you should have been studying game film. But I think probably there's a case to be made that athletes are better off having at least one thing to do besides their sport, right? Or else they sort of get into, uh, I think, where, where Plum is at the beginning of the movie. Exactly, exactly. And and you see that she's got you know she's wanders around town when there when there's no practice to be had. Um and I think some athletes really thrive on being like entirely um immersed in their sport or they find those other outlets to be within their sport world, like you know, coaching or things like that. And for me it's been the film work and that creative outlet, but I think I think you're right that just finding something to to balance it out, uh, at least, you know, mentally, if not physically, so that you're not trying to run 24 hours in a day when you when that's impossible is really healthy. Um, so, yeah. Uh, this is your first time acting in a movie. I, I understand you have some some acting experience before, but what were the what were the challenges of your your first time on camera? I think the biggest challenge was learning just like an athlete learns how to warm up for their game or their race, what it takes to get into that zone. And so I, I really enjoyed, but also was challenged by, you know, stepping into a character, stepping out of, you know, yourself and finding, uh, you know, being comfortable in that vulnerable place that is, acting which feels almost similar to being on a start line where you're like wow I'm really gonna try this thing in my uh in my in my race bottoms like you know you're basically (laughs) running in your underwear Mm -hmm. when you're running and and with acting it's similar that you're like wow I I'm confident enough to try this but I'm also like vulnerable enough to to not know what's ahead um and so finding that warm-up routine was so key and um, something that I turned to every day on set. Well, and you're also, in your case, acting in your race bottoms as well. Right, right, right. And what was so fun about Tracton 2 was like capturing those really authentic moments. So even though like certainly I was acting uh, as Plum, I, I think it was so important for us to have the things that we caught on screen be real like the actors the other runners were real runners real olympic teammates of mine and the sets were the real deal and so stepping on the track to act was it felt like you know i understood what that meant because i've done it so many times well, and one of the difficult aspects of the movie, I think, is that it, it sort of presents, you know, again, from the outside, I think we think Olympian and you think picture of health, right? Everything is perfect. That is the the ideal, right? And and you sort of, sort of show the toll that distance running and distance running over uh, a lifetime might take on, on a person, and especially on a woman. Yep, exactly. Like the, you know, Plum is... is but, you know, forced to kind of face the consequences, um, whether it's from like a doctor being concerned or her own uh, coach telling her to take a day off and and just know that like 
you are a superhero in so many ways, but also you require the very basic uh, needs of, of anyone. And um, for her to have to look at that during the most intense competition of her life is uh, kind of like a, a perfect storm mentally, you know? You mentioned you mentioned uh, that a lot of athletes are, are in the movie as actors, and this was your first time directing. How how did that go? I can't imagine that that's an easy challenge to take on uh, as a first time director, a co director, then also bringing in a bunch of people without maybe a ton of acting experience. Right, and like it it was so cool to see uh, these like Olympians and 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 athletes pursuing the Olympics step into a role that they maybe felt a little bit nervous about. Like the idea of acting is like, seems very scary if you're so used to, to identifying as an athlete. And I think what was special was to, what was important really was to like treat these athletes as athletes and to respect them like actors, but also to, to talk to them in a language that they understood. And so um, you know, I think we definitely use the word action and the classic <laughs> things, but we also, you know, said ready, set, go, or, or used rhetoric that, that athletes just understand, um, and tried to keep the environment as authentic as we wanted the movie to feel. And I guess, I mean, there's probably, you know, in having dealt with actors to some extent, maybe there's something a little bit refreshing about bringing in some people without a ton of experience, especially, you know, as a as a new director, uh, working with people who aren't going to judge you if you take sort of a, a different approach to certain shots or whatever. It was It was refreshing. It was also really cool to see sort of the, you know, like Andy Buckley, who plays Plum's dad, come on to set with, um, you know, Andy Weeding, who is a two-time Olympian and, and to see them interact and like, and, and I don't know, like invigorate each other in a way was a real gift because I think there was like a true respect for like someone coming from a more acting background and someone coming from the more running background that I think captures the kind of energy of Tracktown that we're so, uh, excited about. One fun aspect of it for me, and it's something I think about a lot. I, I, I cover baseball games typically, and you know I, I always kind of wonder what it must be like to have a terrible day at work and then to, to have to finish your terrible day of work with a bunch of people coming up to you and saying like, what did you think about your terrible day at work? Which is me. I'm that guy asking that question. Uh, and you sort of had a, a very fun sort of goofy interaction with the media early in the movie uh, at where Plum, uh, Plum has a tough race and she has to then, you know, talk about it in gracious terms afterwards. And you can see that it's a challenge. Is that, I mean, is, is that the typical experience? Is, is that how that goes? I think so. I mean, we we actually spent some time looking at interviews from races that I had run or that uh, after races that we knew were really, really challenging after Olympic trials and things that are such such high stakes for people. And what you find is that athletes are, um, you know, constantly being asked, like, 
to evaluate themselves and in front of people and in, in the almost the most difficult moment right after something has happened. And so in a way, an, an athlete does have to, um, I don't know if an athlete is an actor per se, but I think an athlete certainly has to carry an awareness and a confidence um, that is beyond answering just to yourself, but answering to these amazing fans and people who care about you, but but also are curious about what's going on. And so for Plum to to have to deal with this at such a young age or in such a new competitive environment is um, is very hard for her. Yeah, I've never really thought about it before, but but I would say it's, it's certainly acting, right? Because, you know, I've, I've known, I'm a competitive guy, I know competitive people, and I know that when you, you walk off the field after a loss, the last thing you want to say is, you know, it was a great game and both teams played hard. You want to say, like, I hate those guys and we got, you know, the, the refs screwed us and whatever else, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's, that's certain. I've never really thought about that before, but that's interesting. That is definitely a form of acting, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, and and hopefully people can identify with that even outside the athletic world of just needing to show up to your your job every day, you know, regardless of it being a good day or a bad day, um, and and that being part of it. Like there's a whole there's the part on the track, but there's also the part with the media. There's the part off the track, alone at home. There's all these different sides to it that that exceed the the moments during the race the movie comes out may 12th what's next for you what what comes after track town so my partner jeremy and i are hard at work on i mean we're, we're so thrilled to be a part of this premiere on may 12th and we will be in la but the film will be showing you know all over the country and then we're sort of buckling down and you know i'm training and continuing to to run and Jeremy and I are continuing to pursue the next project. And that is, uh, that's in the, it's incubator phase right now, which we're really excited about. So is the, is the 2020 Olympics, is that the goal? Yes. Yes. And, um, we're not sure exactly which distance event I'll be doing yet. Last Olympics, it was the 10,000, but the hope is to, explore some longer distances and see what the best fit will be in four years. And do all of that while balancing a, a career as a writer and now a filmmaker. That is, uh, that will be my pleasure. <laughs> and I think, I think it's the only way. Uh, well, it's, it's extremely impressive. I, I really enjoyed what I saw of the movie and Alexi, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you and um, pumped to, to share this, this little window into this world. Again, Tracktown is in theaters starting May 12th. Check it out. Alexi Pappas, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the For the Win podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust who has your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork with Rocket Mortgage. You can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. 
You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com FTW. That's quickenloans.com FTW. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. With that, I'd like to bring on my colleague and friend of the show, Mr. Luke Curdenine. Luke, how are you? Good, Ted. How are you? Good. Um, we're talking in person, which is rare. Uh, I am in the office, as, as uh, you are normally in the office, and so we get to uh, rent out this little conference room and, and chat about sports. Yeah, usually we're in uh, our own respective backyards. Never in, never in each other's, of course. Always in, we always have our space between us, and we're also Skyping. So this is, this is, this is interesting. We're going to be able to do verbal battle face-to-face now. It's a little uncomfortable, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I don't know that I like it. Um, but we should talk about stuff. So, so uh, second week, second show of the week, we like we like to go through our, our favorite things that have happened or, or recent trends that we we like. Uh, and I'll start. I want to talk about uh, and and this was a, someone I'm going to be honest. I didn't know anything about until he won the heavyweight title over the weekend. Anthony Joshua, a British boxer. And I guess the first thing that's that's fun about this guy, for one thing, I believe he's 19 and 0 with 19 knockouts. Yes. So that to me is like, and again, I haven't followed the boxing world lately. I feel like the Klitschko's have kind of taken, so they've been so good and they've been so by far the preeminent heavyweight boxers for so long that it doesn't feel like that weight class has been terribly interesting. And I also find like with boxing, like I sort of go in and out of whether I want to allow myself to like it or not because it is so outrageously brutal. Uh, but then I can't so like sort of in spite of myself, I see it and I'm like, ah, oh, that was pretty awesome. And like I kind of like watching it. Uh, and I don't know, I have, I, I used to love boxing. Like when I was growing up, I always loved boxing. And so it was cool to see this guy uh, beat up Vladimir Klitschko and then seem kind of like a cool guy. Like he, he wants Tyson Fury now. Now he, there's there's all these young heavyweights that uh, are still undefeated that it seems like are careening towards a, a sort of matchup or, or hopefully more fights, I guess, than the Klitschkos gave us. Uh, and also he then said the first thing he was going to do with his, with his windfall of money was pay his hundred and fifty five dollar laundry bill, which <laughs> I like. That's that's a man of the people. Man of the people. Absolutely. How did you rack up a hundred and fifty five dollar laundry bill though? Like what? How much trust does your laundromat have in you that they'd let you get a hundred and fifty five dollars in the hole? Yeah, I know. I, I wouldn't be able to get past twenty dollars at my laundromat. They they would be coming off. Do you spend? Do you only spend twenty dollars at the laundromat? Well, you know, I do it in loads. And okay. But um, do you do you go to the laundromat and do your laundry or do you? No, just no, no. Say, no okay, I chop it off. Yeah. I chop it off. Like, yeah, I mean, I know that may sound pompous. No, you know it does, I, but who has the time for that? I know. I, the, you know, there are things that I'm willing to pay for. Looking nice uh, clothes-wise is not something I'm really willing to spend a lot of money on. I'm really willing to spend a lot of money of being able to substitute an hour and a half of annoying laundry work for being able to do whatever I want during that hour and a half and have it handled for me and fold it all nicely. And in New York, this is obviously an issue that we have to think about a lot. Right, and there, I mean, for, for most of us, we don't have washers and dryers, and so usually there's a place on the corner. You drop it off the place on the corner. But I, I run up like $30 in debt there, not 155 Oh, yeah, 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 no, I know. So, um, and he's been going there for a while, I think. Um, since, so, you know, he was a gold medalist at the, uh, at the Olympics 2012, I believe. Um, 
and you know he, he he's been he's been going there. He went there growing up. He's since become an obviously a millionaire, a successful athlete. And the guy just loves him. Man. They're like, oh yeah, it's Anthony Joshua. He always he always comes in here, does his laundry. Like you know, he he knows. You know, he's got a fifteen million pound paycheck heading his way. Uh, so about nineteen twenty million dollars. Okay. Um, he he knows that he's probably not going to be trying to cheat a laundryman out of hundred fifty dollars. You never know, right? Like, I, I mean, it seems like I, I know plenty of rich people who might <coughs> might try for that one fifty five. Tiger Woods notoriously bad tipper. Really? Notoriously. Huh? Bad. Like, who knew? Yeah, I know. More you know, but yes. Back to Anthony Joshua. Super excited. Boxing is one of my favorite. Uh, it's, probably, it's probably my third or fourth favorite sport, actually, behind golf, soccer, and maybe football. Um, and I, I love it. I've been excited about this guy, Anthony Joshua, for a while because he's British, obviously. Um, and, I, and I think you're right, you know. It's, it's funny because, like, growing up, like, I, I mean, my boxing memories growing up were all about Mike Tyson. You know, it was all right. about... Right, I mean, it was, he was dumb. Tyson yeah. and Holyfield and Lennox Lewis and, you know, George Foreman coming... Like, um, all George Foreman's late, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, the, it was all heavyweight fighters, mm-hmm. especially Tyson. He's the guy who just, you know, from my youth, I think about uh, but because the Klitschko's came along, and they were both the best two boxers around, and they both refused to fight each other, they kind of, their dominance in that division ended up just kind of, uh, ended up kind of spoiling it for the neutral, I guess, in many yeah, ways. Yeah, it felt know? like heavyweight boxing kind of went away, yeah. right? Like Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao became, like, the most famous boxers. And, I don't know, and, like, I guess I wasn't really old enough to know, like, Sugar Ray Leonard or guys like that when there were like these sort of great famous middleweight type guys but for me like you said yeah growing up it was always about the heavyweights it was like, who's the heavyweight championship of the world and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Adi wrote a good thing for, for the win about how like you know the, the belt has become so fractured that you know there, we haven't had an undisputed heavyweight champion of the world in a very long time uh, so that's that's part of the issue uh, there's a lot kind of going on in that sport with the with the economy of it but yeah, it's it's exciting, I think, to get like young, new, fresh, young blood into the sport. Yeah, and like, and if you look historically, boxing does go through these kind of rhythms. Like, you know, it was all Muhammad Ali, and and and, and so in the heavyweight division, then it kind of shifted, as you said, to sort of uh, uh, Duran and like Sugar Ray Leonard, like in the in the sort of middleweight, welterweight division, shifted back to heavyweight with Tyson and stuff, and then it went through the sort of Mayweather era, where the most marketable, you know, and look. For boxing is such a niche sport and with a very loyal audience, but the kind of fights that transcend into these mass appeal ones are the really marketable stars. And for a while, that was Mayweather, that was De La Hoya, that was Ricky Hatton, it was Manny Pacquiao, it was all these welterweights. Um, but now, like as Mayweather's obviously retired, and who knows if he'll come back, Pacquiao is just sort of old and past it, Ricky Hatton's retired, all these people. So now you're just starting to see the ground shift back towards... Um, the most interesting, the most interesting landscape, which happens to be in the heavyweight division, with a bunch of really young, exciting guys, sort of taking the title of taking the title away uh, from Klitschko, who's a forty-one-year-old. Um, so yeah, a lot, lot of interesting stuff going on in that division at the moment. Is that your top good thing? Is that your yes? You Joshua is also mine. So okay, piggy, cool. So we're piggybacking off of yours. Um, I want to say briefly that there's that, um, and it's been replayed about a million times. The fact that Klitschko. <sighs> stayed upright after that uppercut like and I know it, it was that was basically the end of the fight right there but that he stayed up for a while after taking that like uppercut straight to the face so is enormously impressive enormous. like what a psychopath that guy must be oh it's insane it's funny too because like 
I think heavyweight, but it's funny because when you see like a welterweight knock out another welterweight, just because they're lighter and because a human body, a boxer, let me, a boxer's body can withstand a certain amount of force, a, a KO punch like really kind of looks like a KO punch yeah. in like a flyweight division, for example, or welterweight division, middleweight. Whereas with um, heavyweights, like you can see these guys get knocked out by punches that you wouldn't necessarily think look like knockout punches simply because there's just so there's just such a big arm heavyweight. Yeah. This looked like a knockout. I, I can't imagine. This was like yeah, like so it was like much force. It looked like oh my god, that guy's gonna die now. Yeah. And then it was like then he just stayed stayed yeah. upright. Like he kept going. It was nuts. Insane. Yeah. And, and Joshua's like known as a power puncher. Too. I mean, he's that knocked is, out nineteen guys. He's, he's never not had. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see who he's gonna fight next. So it looks like Tyson Fury, though. Apparently, that fight's a long way off. Uh, America needs to step up their game in the heavyweight boxing. They're they're all going into football or something. Well, like, yeah, and I feel like it, MMA has probably taken yeah, a lot MMA. of the. I don't know if that's is that purely American. I know there's there's MMA guys from all over the yeah, world too, but world. but yep, um, that feels like it's it's sort of taken the place of boxing in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Like just in terms of our combat sport, certainly that's the one you hear more about now than boxing. Yeah, and it's just interesting too, like. In America, it seems like there's just much more of a funnel, or it's, there's much more of a hierarchy where like the best athletes tend to go towards either football or, or football or um, basketball. Yeah, football and basketball. Um, you know, simply because those are very athletic sports. Whereas in England, like you have guys who could like. In another world, you could see Dirk Nowitzki being a. You know, he went into basketball. Like you could see him being maybe a fighter, maybe a soccer player, maybe a you know maybe all, a big fighter, right? Maybe maybe a six big, eleven guy. Six eleven. Yeah. Like there are all kinds of things you could kind of see him doing, but they they just tend to spread out in these other sports. So you have like really top level athletes gravitating towards all kinds of things, whereas over here it just seems like you know if you're LeBron James you're going to play either football or basketball right and that's like that's like the thing you always say about or people always say about a guy like Yasiel Puig or Giannis Espinosa or like, you know any number of Latin American baseball players you look at them and you say like oh well if this guy lived in the US he would definitely be a football player yeah, like, there's, yeah. there's no doubt that Puig would be an awesome outside linebacker and and maybe that would be his sport if he were here it's just yeah I think that the the like the way youth sports are structured, and I don't know, I can't compare it to anywhere else, but it's just you know you yeah, you play one of the major sports generally. I think like the yeah football, basketball, especially basketball, just is so easy to play, and so there's so many places you can play it. Uh, baseball to a lesser extent, soccer to some extent, but like I I know like as growing up a kid playing sports, playing all sports, I could like anything anyone would let me do, I would play. And, like, I didn't get any exposure to boxing once. Like, in, in college, I boxed a little bit. But, like, and I would have loved to do it before. And, like, my friends and I, I actually had boxing gloves uh, growing up. And so, like, my friends and I would beat the crap out of each other in my basement. But it wasn't any sort of, like, formal thing. It was yeah, just, yeah. we would just punch each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It got a little too intense sometimes, <laughs> to be honest. Like, there was some, yeah, there, yeah. Was, some, there was some, like, real throwdown fights among... <laughs> I'm thinking about it now, like now, like I'm trying to think about like how the web would take if they could see what my friends were doing in my basement when we were like 12. But I remember one fight where like one guy was just his whole face was bleeding, and the other guy went into the laundry room to throw up in the garbage pail and like came back and kept fighting. <laughs> which we were like 12, we were in like sixth grade. So yeah. A middleweight boxer, Ted Berg, that never was because he got yeah. siphoned into playing football and baseball. Yeah, I know. I don't think I would have been very good. I, 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 uh, 
Have you, have you ever boxed at all? No, no. It's, inc- it's, it's insane. That's like, one thing I keep hearing. Like, obviously, it goes without saying being punched in the face is really difficult. But it's just the it's physical the f- act of yeah. being in a room for three minutes, like, dancing. Yeah, it's just the adrenaline. It's not just the being punched in the face that, that is hard. It's the fear that you're going to get punched in the face at any... Like, that just standing in a ring... Uh, and looking at someone who's trying to punch you, like the the amount of adrenaline that comes with that is just like everybody always says it. And I'm, I think I've even said it on the podcast before. It's like sprinting for three straight minutes. Like that's the only way to compare it. Interesting. Uh, should we move on? Should yes. Uh, so my next thing, and this is a book that you got for me. Yes. I uh, and I've been meaning to talk about this for a while because I like to make fun of uh, you. And uh, and British things in general. You know, we are uh, here in the U.S. Are our forefathers fought very hard so that we could not eat fish and chips and or watch soccer, and so I kind of <laughs> I kind of revel in those things. But I do find aspects of the culture fairly fascinating. This is a book about Cockney rhyming slang, which I've known about. I've known about. I think because of Pop Goes the Weasel. I think was based on some sort of Cockney rhyming slang. And I think one time I wound up on the Pop Goes the Weasel. Wikipedia page and then falling down the hole into finding out what Cockney rhyming slang is. Basically, uh, Cockney people, and you can tell me more about that. I'm taking it, you're not a Cockney I'm guy. Not, I'm, no, I'm you from, know Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm, from, <laughs> I'm from sort of near the area. Like, I'm a chill, like, so I'm a Chelsea fan, a, so- a soccer club, Chelsea fan, literally the closest club next to me. And Chelsea's like renowned as like a lot of Cockney, you know, a lot of Cockney people. So is it just, I mean, so. I guess to start, so first of all, Cockney rhyming slang, if you don't know, what they do, and it's so weirdly abstract and like so far off from reality that, so what they'll do is they'll come up with a word that, or with a, if instead of saying something like, I mean, you can, if you want to read me an example, like instead of saying like something like, um, and I'm, I'm just coming up with an American version of Cockney rhyming slang, so I'm doing it off the top of my head, but say you wanted to say beans. You wouldn't say beans. You would come up with a phrase that ends with a rhyme, with something that rhymes with beans. So say something like, what rhymes with beans? What's a phrase that like, uh, like baseball teams or something like, and then, and then you take off the part that rhymes. So you would just be like, oh, baseball. And when you say baseball, you mean beans. And so like, like I'll pull an example out of the book. Um, so to say, to say window, right? Now this is how I, this is how bizarre and like I don't understand how people can communicate like this. To say window, you might say a Tommy. Why? Because of a British comedian from the 1940s named Tommy Trinder, which sort of rhymes with window, and then you kill off the actual rhyming part and just say the first part. So instead of saying Trafalgar Square, you'd say Trafalgar Square or Trafalgar to mean chair. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's just... Do uh, you speak this with your friends when you go home? You're just like... Yeah, yeah, I'm just... I I, I only play a sort of half-posh English toff over here. No, um... I, 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 to say I understand it is an overstatement. I understand elements of it. Wait, but tell me more. So do it. I want to hear more about the what I what I was trying to get get at was 
where is this happening? Like, who who are the? I don't know anything. I all I know I know Eliza Doolittle, yeah. and that's basically it for yeah. what I understand of Cockney culture. The people have you seen the movie Snatch? Yes. Is that Cockney? Um, are they Cockney? N- yes. They're, they're okay. Cockney, I yeah, I, I'm blanking on the movie. I can't. All I know is With I can't. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's right, in it, okay. and I can't understand a single word anybody says in the entire movie. <laughs> it's probably Cockney. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Cockney is inner city London, essentially. Um, yeah, inner city London, uh, very so, slightly sort of west of the Thames, sort of, but very, very centralized. Um, and yeah, like it's it's all predicated on like banter essentially. And good banter in England is not like abuse. It's all like very bubbly, and it's kind of clever in many ways. And it's a, it's yeah. sort of a working a working class like Cockneys are known as like a working class hero types. You know, like very clever, very creative, like fun loving. Um, and I'm obviously stereotyping, but trying to paint the picture here, fun-loving sort of pub goers. And so they come up with all these ways of making the language slightly more interesting. And it's to be difficult, right? Like it's, they want it to be, like I read, because I read the book and the book sort of introduces it as it was like, it was intentionally dense. Like they wanted to have a language that other people Yeah, it's essentially like forming an accent and it's a bit it's like pig Latin. And, and pig Latin. And yeah. it's it's a bit like the best way I can explain it is like you you know how sometimes like we go to a bar and like we'll sort of be laughing a bit tipsy with our friends and we'll like come up with something like a nickname maybe and you and then suddenly that nickname sticks and for the rest of your life you're like Oh yeah, this is bum fluff over here. Yeah. <laughs> right, and just make eventually it makes it's, sense. It's, it's essentially creating an entire language about this. So instead of being like, oh yeah, I got punched in the face, but oh yeah, I got punched in the boat the other day. In and the what? In the boat. So it's a boat race face. But why would it say? <laughs> but, but there's so many boat things. That's what. That's what. So it could be like. Boat wheel, boat rudder, <laughs> boat, like why, why does it do, because when I think boat, I don't automatically think boat race, so why, how do I get to face, that's my issue with the thing, right, is, if, if it was something that you always say, so like, instead of stairs, yeah. you say apples, right, is this yep. is the one, yep. because of apples and pears, and but why not apples and oranges, <laughs> right, like why, why is it apples and pears, I don't know, why do apples and pears even go together, they're Similar. It's a language. It's a language. Yeah. And it's tough, to, and it's tough to. It's a tough to. It, it's tough to uh, deduce uh, to deductive reason your way through different languages, right? And that's yeah, essentially yeah. what Cockney's like. This is way. To say like oh, I'm a bit. I'm in a bit of Barney with the with the misses. Barney <laughs> rubble means trouble. You sound so much more English <laughs> when you talk like that too. Um, but that's how. That's sort of how it goes, right? That's um. Bar- it's because for Barney Rubble well, why, means why trouble. You, why don't you try your cockney? Why don't we? Why don't we put together a sentence right now? Um, I just from said, the book. I just said. If you oh yeah, boat race face. I just opened to that one. Oh cool, yeah. Um, so so, well, so, so wait, so here's like, what gets say me. Say like I'm in a bit of Barney with a miss. I'm in a bit of Barney with the missus. Well, I wanted to go to one <laughs> one one that uh, intrigues me. Is so to say according to this to say haddock, you might say Bessie. Because of someone named Bessie Braddock, who I don't know who that is. Do you know who that is? No, no but the, someone knew who that is. So yes. you're supposed to know who, you're supposed to immediately know when someone refers to Bessie, they mean Bessie Braddock. And that, that means you want Haddock. But if you call someone Haddock, that is as in Haddock and Cod. So it is to say that they are a sod. Yeah. Right? So if you say like, hey, Haddock, I want some Bessie. That means like, hey, you sod, I want some haddock. 
That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's, the it's the beauty of Cockney's Latin. It's, it's, it's clever, it's fun, and it's funny once you figure it out, I think is sort of the main goal of all of this. That it's just like, it's funny when you get to the end of what it means, but it's kind of inherently rooted in humor. In right, ways. right. And that's cool. I mean, you know. All respect to the... I mean, it seems like they've got a fun thing going on. <laughs> I don't begrudge them talking like that. Just don't expect me to understand when... Well, oh, you know what? I, I Now I'm looking at the front of the book, and I remembered why I know... Why I found out about Cockney Slam. Oh, that's and it's funny, because I was just referring to... Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail because obviously whenever I see you I bring up all sorts of British stuff and, and this is and how the book about came about um, so yeah so <laughs> I uh, and in that from that movie I learned the term blowing a raspberry which I had never heard before but it's when you basically like stick your tongue out and go, you know um, which the guy does uh, when the guy at the, the in you know Monty Python if you don't you, you if you know if you've seen the movie you know the part I'm referring to if you don't Whatever, Monty Python on the Quest for the Holy Grail. But that's how we learned the term blowing a raspberry. That comes from Cockney rhyming slang because raspberry tart rhymes with fart. And so it means like making a fart noise, you just say raspberry. <laughs> it doesn't, it's so weird. It's so, it's so weird. Because why raspberry tart? Why not raspberries and cream? And then maybe you're talking about, I don't know. You're, again, your team. It's, it's funny because, you know, England is obviously such an, uh, United Kingdom is such an old area. The, the, all kinds of peculiarities have formed over time. Um, my, one of my favorite things, too, is like when you get north, you start, when you get north in within England, but just getting more north, all these other things start happening. So, like, I forget, I believe it's the, um, I believe it's sort of the Geordies. So up by Newcastle and Sunderland, very near Scotland. I they, know nothing of they, British geography. They they drop the thes in, in front of nouns. Huh. And it's really strange. So I wouldn't be like Ted sitting on the chair. Ted sitting on chair. You're right. Ted sitting on chair. And huh. he, and they drop all the thes. And it's so amusing to hear to, to listen to them like, oh, I was sitting on subway the other day. And it's just, it's so, it, it, it's it's fun. I don't know how you get to the point where you just decide, let's be more efficient and cut out all the thes. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, the stuff just exists in England, man. I gotta check out England sometime. <laughs> I gotta, I've never been, it's like, it's weird. I've been so many places in this world and like, it almost seems like a place too many people go for me to want to go, yeah. but like I understand. Too mainstream. For I, exactly. I'm, but I understand London to be a cool place. I should probably check it out. Uh, my people are from Scotland, you know, some <laughs> of them. So I don't know. Is Scotland nice? Have you been to Scotland? I have. Um, yeah. I, I, my my dad went to college in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, don't go to Don't go to Glasgow. Okay. Edinburgh is brilliant. All right. Um, well, Glasgow is like is like the working class like. Dumb. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Luke is just crapping all over Glasgow sorry now. Sorry to our Glasgow listeners. I mean, that is where, that is where my family's from. Or, or, just for their or, are they really yeah, they are. from Glasgow? Yeah, my grandmother was born in, and she was born in Port Glasgow, which I guess is slightly a little right. bit further away, yeah. but yeah, that's where no, she's from. I've obviously gone play golf in Scotland, and then uh, Edinburgh's a beautiful city, but that's my extent. All right, yeah, I don't do a lot of golfing, so that's probably... Uh, but yeah, I hear I hear Scotland. Nice. I heard Wales is super nice. Oh, uh, Wales is the most... This is... I'll, I'll drop a quick hot take on quick. Okay, quick one. British Empire hot British take. British Empire <laughs> hot take. It's my contention that that Wales 
is the most underrated country in Europe and, and in the conversation for most underrated countries in the world. People always say, you know, there's this stat that always floats around about how there are more sheep than people in Wales. And that's, that's nice though, and right? And a bunch of nothing. Go to Wales, okay? It's a beautiful place. It's just a beautiful. The accent's really cool. And everybody is so friendly. And they don't quite understand why, like, the English are grumpy all the time. And while and while the, uh, why they make fun of them, their country so much. They're all really nice people. You know, they've obviously... Wait, know, do, wait, good, do, they're a good-looking people, Do the English too. make fun of the Welsh? Is that a thing? They all make Scottish, English, Irish, Welsh. Everybody all, makes fun everybody of everybody makes fun else, of each yeah. other. Except the Welsh are just, like, they're kind of like, no, they make fun of us. We don't quite understand why. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no. Wales, very do, underrated. Do they all look like Christian Bale? Does everybody look like Christian Bale? Look, think, and think about like the amount of Welsh people, you know, they're all pretty good looking people. Yeah, they're, that's true, yeah. they just got a finger. I only know Christian Bale, it's the only Welsh person I can Catherine name. Zeta Jones. She's Welsh? She's Welsh. She is an attractive woman. Um, I know I'm missing a bunch of people from Wales. That's it, those are the two Welsh people. Those are the two Welsh people. Uh, Dylan Thomas, the poet, is yeah, Welsh, right? right? Yeah. Alright, yeah, I gotta get let's let's move on. Well you you can Google some Welsh people and I will tell you uh, wait, you didn't give me your second good thing. Oh my second good thing. Um you know it seems so out of place here, so we'll only touch on it. Uh, golf uh golf is banning or thinking about banning green reading books. I don't know what that means. Yeah. It's basically so there there are these little books. I'm interested, I don't not want so, to learn. So, so there are these little books that pros use that diagnose like the every slope and quantify every single slope on a green, um, which is where the player's part, obviously. And so the... What the, happened to crouching? No, so they still crouch, but <laughs> okay. they also, they also <laughs> consult these books. And so the thinking goes is, uh, according to advocates of the idea, that, um, that, that it takes, that these players are studying these books so long and it, it just, it ends up, it ends up just like making pace of play, which is this sort of constant issue golfers think about, like baseball. That's the thing people think about in golf, there is no pace of play. It's so slow, they say, and they want to speed it up, and they think that people are pouring over all this material, there's time to reduce the amount of material they're allowed to pour over, and now they're targeting these books. Kind of interesting, the idea that you can limit the amount. This This isn't immoral or unethical in any way, they're just preparing, you know, it's like saying, you know, it's, 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 it's like saying you're not allowed to bring certain notes into a test or something. Or, you know, some teachers say you can bring in this, but you can't bring in the answers. You can bring in, what? it's an open book test or is it not? It's essentially like dealing in those kind of problems. It seems weird to ban more information to make you better at the sport, right? Like there's not, it's not like you're taking steroids, right? You're just yeah. looking at the a better read of the green. Yeah, right? exactly. It's not an unfair advantage, it's preparation. Because um, everybody can have the book. Everybody can do it. Everybody can have it. The idea is that if you can't have it, the same way that football teams aren't allowed to videotape teams as pra- other teams as practice. But that's obviously you can't vid- videotape the other team's practice, right? That's a lot different. That's a lot different than just everybody is playing on the same green. Everybody can buy this book. Yeah, but you right? can say everybody's allowed to videotape every other team's practice, like open, you know, open book test. But they said no. Nah, we kind of want you to figure out. The yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Oh, so, so is it good that they're banning it? Do you want them to ban it? I guess it? I come down on team. Yeah, it's it's good they're having the conversation and it's a good idea to have because uh, the the era in golf right now is all about like how far can you hit the ball, and so it stands to reason that if you make putting harder by taking away the stuff, it it actually helps. Uh, 
food, it actually helps re-emphasize the importance of putting. Like the skills of golf. The skills of like, the skills of golf, which is uh, the skills of like putting, which right. is like sorely needed in an era that's dominated by distance. So in that respect, yeah. Yeah, it's cool that, I mean, I feel like, because in my mind, I just kind of like, it just all sort of goes into the golf bucket. But when you think about it, like driving a golf ball and putting a golf ball are extremely different yeah, skills. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, sorry, moving. No, no, no. You know, I, I have one more. I have another golf point to make, and this is something that came up with Charles on the last podcast. But you're a golf guy. I want to see where you'd stand on this idea. What if? And I'm not saying eliminate golf. I'm just saying. <laughs> good, good. Instead of what if? In addition to, and someone said there's well, there's speed golf and there's timed golf, but uh, the way it was presented is not exactly what I want. What I want, and this came because Charles said he loves driving golf carts, which is true for me too. I think that my point. I mean, Charles was, I would rather someone give me a golf course and and a golf cart and be like, hey, just drive around for three hours. That would be more fun to me <laughs> than actually cars, playing basically. golf. Yeah, like I would just speed, like you could just speed wherever you want on the golf course. That would be awesome. Like I would love that. Yeah. Um, so what if you combined golf, like sort of a, a golf cart racing with golfing so that you, the it wasn't just speed golf. It was the entire golf match is just a pure race and so it doesn't matter how many times i hit it right so like say we're playing on a par four and you can bogey it and i'm gonna need like 10 strokes but i'm making it all happen because you're gonna like line things up and throw the little piece of grass up and measure the wind whereas i'm just like sprinting knocking the ball as hard as i can get in the car right back chase it down drive over the log drive right up onto the cart path where i have to be also in this in this world there's no the carts can go anywhere you can just drive right up on the green wherever you want because and you can if if you happen to see your opponent on the course you can ram right into him there's a little demolition derby aspect to it too and that's golf it's just a pure race you have the golf cart you have you have to use the clubs to hit the ball that's the rule and you have to get the ball in the hole before you go on to the next hole and it's just who can finish faster you know it's interesting you could you could even say like you know how golf's all about getting the lowest score right you could almost be like who can get the highest score in as least amount of time? Well, that's complicated, that though. I will, yeah, because that in many ways. Well, I don't want to take the. Skill, yeah, right? I don't want to take the all the skill out of it. <laughs> I just want to also be like, just be like, okay, like, well, he was golfing a great game until the other guy rammed into his golf cart, <laughs> tipped it over its side, and then he had to sprint for the rest of the course. <laughs> Um, it, would, it would bring in much needed Hunger Games aspect. Yeah, that's what I want. I want like a mix of golf and the Hunger Games, which are like some extreme, <laughs> extreme polar opposites. <laughs> oh look, he's charging out with his cart, but he's got—he's using his golf clubs as a self-defense mechanism. Like, yeah, I would tune into that. Uh, well, good. Uh, I'm gonna do my last, my last good thing. Let's hear it. Uh, the Met Gala happened last oh, night yeah, in our neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, not something. I'm not a gala guy. I don't know no? if you knew that about me. Shocking. I'm not a guy who. <laughs> Goes to a lot of galas. I do like the Met. The Met's kind of nice. Have you ever been to the Met? A few times. Yeah, it's I like it's a this is a hot tip for anyone who's out there thinking about New York City art museums. The Met is basically the only one with like a suggested donation instead of a mandatory donation. So if you're someone like me and you live in the neighborhood and you go there pretty frequently, you don't have to pay the twenty bucks or whatever it is they want you to pay to go in. You can be like, "Hey, I'm going to donate five bucks today and and pay five bucks and see." You know, because I feel like a lot of times the the cost of the art museum is so much that then it's you have to make it a whole day affair. And I never want to spend five hours in an art museum. I want to spend an hour and a half walking around, checking out some stuff, and then leave. So the Met is perfect for me because it's you can just 
have sort of that like you don't have to you don't have to feel like you've made such a big investment that you can't stay there. But that's aside. The thing I like about it, and it's just you know, and I don't get down on celebrity couples very often. Like that's not a thing I care about. I kind of feel like people should like like yeah, live your life, date whoever you want, do your thing, and like it's not my business. And and nothing upsets me more, or weirds me out more than when like a celebrity couple has to put out a press release that they broke up. That's the weirdest thing to me, right? Like that's that's not how life works. <laughs> um, but. All that said, I love the concept that Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez are dating. I want them to live a long, happy life together at being like two of my favorite just an, stars. Just an yeah, just like named couple, right? They just, now they're so, so they're calling them J Rod. I might go with like Jalex Rodriguez or something, <laughs> but uh, much much easier to say. Jalex. Yeah, um, I don't know. I just they they looked great. Uh, they seem happy. I'm happy. I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know why. Like, it feels like, I've, it feels like I've known both of these people for so long. You know, even though I've, I've met, in total I've spent, I did get to spend like an hour with A-Rod one time, right? But that's the whole hour. That's the whole amount of time I have known either of these people. I've never met J-Lo. But like, it just, they've been celebrities for so long. Like, they've both been celebrities since the 90s, right? And now it's like, and we've, we've, they've had all of these different public romances and, and marriages and whatever else and I would be psyched if they were happy if this is it like because everybody's so cynical about these things like oh A-Rod just wants the attention and so that's why he's doing that and she just wants this and that's why she's doing that why can't anyone believe in love anymore why can't A-Rod and J-Lo just fall deeply and madly in love and stay that way for the rest of their beautiful rich luxurious lives man when I walked into this podcast room I did not expect to hear Ted explaining why he's emotionally attached to a celebrity couple that's it that's my one that's that's my that's a yeah and I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let her ride I'm I'm J-Rod that's what I want that's my celebrity couple I hope they last forever I, but didn't we even do a Facebook Live talking, like, last... Because didn't he show up with a different person? He had a... Uh, yeah, so he was, he was dating... Canoodling, a, or was he He was dating with a Silicon Valley CEO. Oh. I forget her name, but it was, like, a, a power businesswoman. Because oh. um, that's kind of, you know... And, and like, if we're being fair, J-Lo is kind of a power businesswoman, too. Oh, yeah. And that's what A-Rod's... He's into business, you know? Like, that's his, his shtick, sort of. And, I don't know, I imagine if you're, uh, you know, if you're that wealthy... It must be kind of nice to date another wealthy person and not have that like lingering suspicion that someone is into you for your money. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, no, was A Rod the only baseball player there? I know Tom Brady was there, obviously with Giselle. Serena was there. I saw Cam Newton was. Yeah, there. I don't. I don't think. I mean, that was the only one I saw was A Rod, but that's really the only one I. I, I, I only have ice cream. Anyway. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's the middle the middle of the baseball season, so for most you know, so for, any yeah, active yeah. player would be Jeter out. Was the, I guess my question is like, was Derek Jeter there? I didn't see any pictures. I didn't see Derek Jeter there either. Amendola I, was there. I, I don't know how far along his wife is in pregnancy, oh, yeah, but she's yeah. pregnant, so like maybe she's too pregnant to go to the Met Ball or whatever. Oh, Met Gala. Um, I know. A Rod's always also he's a been a long time Met. Benefactor, oh, which I know okay. about from if you see when you pass by it, because Luke and I both live very close to this museum. When you pass by it, uh, you see the signs of the benefactors outside with like what they love about the Met, and one of them is A Rod. What, what what does he love about the Met? A Rod loves art. He's an art collector. He's rumored to have a painting of himself as a centaur in his house. He denies it, but I, I want it to be true. It's another thing I want to be true. Uh, he's also got like. 
I think he's uh, he. If you see, if you look at the photos, whenever he sells his house, there will be photos up there, and there's like an Andy Warhol original in there and stuff. Like Arod's got some some baller ass art. Yeah, you know, I feel like when you reach a certain level of rich, there becomes like a number of. Uh, semi-pointless things that you just create to spend your money on, you know? Like, and I feel like, you know, A-Rod's probably reached that level with yeah. art. And, like, I feel like that's a good way. Like, in terms of, like, super rich people spending their money doing kind of pointless things, I feel like a bunch of art... Well, it's generally kind of been a good... I think that art typically is a pretty good investment. If you're, yeah. if you're... Cars is, like, a terrible... Investment. Well, cars is the worst, right? Because yeah. cars, you start losing your money as soon as you drive off the lot. Yeah. But... Uh, and I think art tends to appreciate, and I think, like, I don't know that this is what A-Rod's doing, but I think that there's, like, good business in, like, speculating on artists. And also being seen around it, yeah. I bet. Like, you know, like, A-Rod wants to be seen probably as, like, and not in a cynical way, but just, you know, part of the motivation people invest in art is because they kind of want to be in with the, the crowd. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, like, like, interest with the crowd. Um, I went to grad school to basically learn how to talk about art. <laughs> And it's all BS. It's all BS. Like, because it's all art is really just like, do you like the art or do you not like the art? That's what it boils down to. And they're like, okay, well, this is what it means. This is what it. And, but it is fun to sort of go to those things, especially as like, and maybe A Rod's in this sort of same situation too, but as like a typically, like, kind of a jockish dude to be in the setting and be like, and surprise people by being like, he really knows how to use paint. <laughs> and someone's like, who? I really like, love the texture yeah, of the hills up there. That's yeah. bold. Look at the way the eye is drawn to this focal point. And then people are like, huh, oh, this guy knows about art. I don't. I don't. I have a master's in it, but that doesn't mean I know anything. It's just all I know is how to pretend like I know about art. That's right. That's right. One key thing. Um, Side note, rich people hobby, I feel like racing horses would be a fun rich people hobby. I don't like racing. I don't like riding a horse. Have you ever ridden a horse? Yes. It's horrible. Every gentleman must learn. No, it's a horribly uncomfortable thing. I don't know why anyone would want to do that. Have a bike. You're not necessarily riding the race horses. You're owning the race horses. Oh, I don't want to do that either. I feel like that would be a fun rich people I know. I feel like I would get up to cooler stuff than owning racers. Oh, my! I would own a Zeppelin. I would own a... Oh, a Zeppelin. I thought you were going to say own a sports team. No, no. No, oh, I would own a Zeppelin. I would have, a, I would have a, some sort of, of airship. <laughs> um, maybe just a regular blimp, but I would have like my own blimp, and that would be, and it would be like baller ass. Like you it would be, it would be like super luxurious. Where's and, Ted? Oh, he's over Right, and be like, there he goes. <laughs> yeah, there, there's Ted right now. I would have a big picture of my face on it so everyone knew it was me. No doubt whose blimp that was. And like, yeah, I would just be like hovering over baseball games all the exactly. time. You know, exactly. like, I don't know what sort of like license you need to have a blimp. I don't know how any of blimp stuff works. I'm not there yet for blimp culture, but that has always been it for me. It's Makes like, sense. I want to be a more rich than a guy. Yacht? You prefer more oh, than yeah. I don't like, I don't like boats. I'm not no? a boat guy. Not a big boat guy? I'm a boat guy. I'm not a boat guy. I don't, I'm, I mean, not that a blimp would make this better, but I'm like, I'm, claust I'm a little bit claustrophobic, and something about the boat, like being out in the ocean when you can't see land, that like kind of freaks me yeah, out. There's That's something like, reassuring for the claustrophobe about being encased in a tube thirty thousand feet above sea level. Right, right. I don't know. I've never been in a blimp, so I can't say. Maybe I would get my blimp, and it would be like my lifelong dream. And then again, I'd be like, this sucks. This is I don't want to be a blimp anymore. Um, but I know I've been in boats, and like I know, like I have very few sort of irrational phobias. But for whatever reason, and it's not being on a boat. Like, I'm, like a, my friend has a boat, and we go out and drink a couple beers out on the bay Boats or whatever. Boats are also a terrible um, investment of the time, right? It's definitely a terrible costs. investment. There's so many costs. 
But, like, when I see, for whatever reason, when I see, like, a big shipping boat, like, a, one of those big, like, if you go down by, like, Red Hook in Brooklyn and you see, like, all the big boats coming into it in the harbor, they freak me out. And I don't know why. Huh. No, no idea. It's a, it's a fact. Big it's boats. Big yeah. Boats. I'm scared They're of big boats. Yeah. don't like big boats. Tell me your last good thing. My last good thing. It's a sad day, Ted. It's a sad day today. <laughs> it is the 19th anniversary of the Battle of Hogwarts. So if I could just request, respectfully, a moment of silence for all those lost in the 19th anniversary of the Battle of Hogwarts. Well, no one got lost in the 19th anniversary, just in the actual Battle yeah, of Hogwarts. Yes, uh, yes, 19 years ago. Okay, moment of silence. Okay. Well, well, sad, wait, why, sad, why sad, is it 19 sad, years? Sad, sad. 19 years since the book came out? No, 19 years since the Battle of Hogwarts took place. When did the battle... Wait, but it took place on a date? It took place on uh, May 2nd, 1998. Okay. Yeah. When, in what book was it? I see, so now, I don't... So I've, we're talking about Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I may have mentioned this on the show before, and I know I've mentioned it to you. Uh, I have not read a single Harry Potter book or seen a moment of a Harry Potter movie. Really? Not I have seen a movie. entirely missed it. I missed what? it intentionally uh, at first. Okay, okay. So Harry, Harry Potter came out when I was like a sophomore in high school or junior in high school. I guess when, when was the first book? It's like the late 90s sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and at that point, like, I prided my, you know, I'm sort of a snob, right? And <laughs> uh, and consider myself a member of the intellectual elite, so... <laughs> I studied I, art in college. Yeah, well, well like, I, I was someone who always, my whole life, I have always read books for pleasure. And in high school, that's not typical, right? There's not a lot, I, you just don't meet a lot of people who read a lot of books. And so all of a sudden there's this book came out and everybody's reading a book and it's like, whoa, kind screw these people, I already read books. Kind of yeah, like, and it's like, that, that book is for I'm, chumps I'm who reading, don't read. I'm reading Slaughterhouse 5 right, right, well, yeah. Right, right, and it's like, you're coming at me with like entry level books and like, bro, I already read books. And so it was like, I felt like I was too good for it at first. And like, I understand I would probably really like it is the thing because I, I like stuff like that. Um, but then I just missed it and then movies came out and I was like, ah, I didn't read the books, I don't even know. And now I feel like I need to know because it's just like such a staple of our culture that I'm like in the dark. Like I didn't, it, I didn't intend for it to be like I want to isolate myself from the Harry Potter world. It just kind of happened, and now it's like, what am I gonna sit? Am I gonna really sit down and watch like seven Harry it, Potter? It's movies? one of these things where like I do think Harry Potter has made this jump where like even if like and I tell people even if you're not into the Star Warses for example or into like I, I actually just watched The Shining for the first time maybe like a month or two ago. and you were probably like oh here are all here these references are so many yeah. cultural references yeah. in here you know and like and, and I think Harry Potter's reached that point mm -hmm. where like kind of need to watch it at this Absolutely. point just Absolutely. because there's like all kinds of references well to like it. yeah and like I know about Quidditch and I know about Dumbledore now I watch The Shining and you understand why it's funny when like twin girls appear in hallways or something you know yeah, something yeah. like ah, this makes sense now um, but yeah so brief overview the, the, the final battle of the series occurs at Hogwarts um, this is Voldemort, he who must not be named, rather, against Harry Potter. They show down at Hogwarts, which is the school of witchcraft and wizardry. I know that. And, um, yeah, it happened on May 2nd, 1998, even though the books came out, sort of, this book came out early 2000s. See, I didn't realize that Harry Potter was set in... My, I it's, guess. Not, it's not a very prominent part of the book because they're kind of just chilling in their own wizard universe. Okay. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, that's right. I thought it was like a Lord of the Rings thing where it's like a parallel. No, it's like, not. It's not quite like a dystopian. Like it's kind of set in England in 1998 is the end of it. Okay. Um, but but yeah, the, but the timeline is kind of incidental to it because you're obviously when you're in Hogwarts and you have like 
ghosts floating around. Like you're not really like, oh man, this is like the rise of the first dot com bubble. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so like, because like, does Harry yes, Potter go on the yes, internet? Like yes, does he have the internet? Of, yes, it's kind of unfolding, but it's not really like when you're on Hogwarts. But do they reference like? modern culture at all or is it just all in the bubble only when he's hanging out with muggles you know like you the, the picture in non-magic folk oh, um, oh yeah so like they'll be going around london with his non-magic folk family and um that's where he, Wait, his his family aren't also wizards yeah so his mother so the premise of harry potter is that his parents are killed by this dark wizard so he goes to live with his uh, aunt and uncle who aren't wizards. I believe that is also the premise of Batman, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So I know about that one. Wait, but what about the whole going underground, having a cave, and having yeah. a, does Harry Potter not have a cave? No, does... no, he doesn't live in a cave. Unfortunately, it would be cool. Um, no, yeah. So the picture they paint of London is very 1998-ish, but that's it's kind of incidental to the whole thing. Um, but the Battle of Hogwarts, so the final act, basically of it. Um, occurs in 1998. How do they say in the book, like, on May 2nd, this happened? Like, how do we know that it happened on May 2nd, 1998? We know it happens because it has... So, so it started with fans deducting the time, you know, with these, when you have these super okay. fans, they, just, they figure out the timeline, and then it was confirmed. J.K. Rowling does all kinds of, um, not kind of clarifications on Twitter, which drives some people insane, but for Harry Potter fans, it's awesome. So she then clarified the timeline. Okay. Yes. And sense. she said, and she said, May second, nineteen ninety eight is yes. correct. It's, it's correct. So because because so, but it wasn't something like in the book, like and then on May second, nineteen ninety eight, yes. Harry and his yeah. friends. Very, did... it's very incidental. To okay. Me. So it's like how, like, because uh, actually, it's a post that comes up. It like shows up on For the Winds popular posts once a year on the day, and I forget. I think it's in September, the day that. Ferris Bueller took his day off, oh, you know, like, it's mean, like, what, what, yeah, it's and like, it's the same sort of thing, like, people, you know, there wasn't a day, you know, and, like, if you think, and if you try you to figure, figure it out, out, a lot of things yeah. don't really line up, but, like, go based on the baseball game that they were talking about and what yeah, could have happened, yeah. like, you know, people put together, like, it's this, I think it must be, can't be September, because that would be the beginning of the school year, so I think it's, like, you know, May 15th of yeah. 1985 this or whatever This is like exactly what yeah. happened with Harry Potter. Like right. you can kind of figure, you can figure out the time. Or like someone did it with uh, Ice Cubes, today was a good day, uh, you know, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like figured out like this is the day. But then when they figure, after they figure that out, the funny thing about that, speaking, let's draw it back to blimps, <laughs> then, so Ice Cube says he sees the, the Goodyear blimp and it says Ice Cube's a pimp, uh, which I don't know if we can say that word in the podcast, but I just did. Pimp. That's uh, a swear word. Yeah, I don't think it is. Um, anyway, it says that in the. Probably pimp. rhymes with something. It yeah. Slam. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But then it turned out, so someone did all this research to find out that this is the day that Ice Cube is referring to, the Lakers beat the Supersonics, etc. Uh, and then, as it turned out, after they found out that research, someone else pulled up an article that was like, the Goodyear blimp is actually out of commission this week. So it couldn't have been that day. Oh, That's how, yeah. But Dagger, go figure, it was Dagger fiction. The super fans. Um, anyway, uh, I feel like we got to go. Yeah. Um, because we have a meeting coming up. Uh, thanks again for joining us. You can check out the For the Win podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. Rate us, review us. Uh, Luke, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Ted. Thank you for having me. And peace out.